Well, good morning and happy Sabbath, everyone. We want to welcome the uh, the Gan family to our church. <laughs> um, as Jinha mentioned before, I think uh, I think the long weekend uh, connected with a few different programs that are running right now have uh, have uh, created a bit of um, overlap in schedules. But um, we're very glad for those of you who are visiting us and joining us here um, this Sabbath. Um, Today we're going to be talking about a topic called getting a grip on guilt, getting a grip on guilt. Um, This is really a message to the newly baptized members of the Melbourne City Adventist Church. Um, For those of you who were uh, at the baptism a couple weeks ago, a couple weekends ago, it was such an incredible time to hear the testimonies of the individuals that were, that committed their lives to, to Christ. It was such an incredible thing to see the family and friends of those who were getting baptized. And it was just, it was definitely a highlight of the year. Um, today I wanted to share this message. Well, I was, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about these individuals and I just kind of thought, you know, as you continue in your journey with Christ, um, I think it's really, uh, it's a useful thing to understand how to wrestle with grapple and get a grip on guilt. And so, um, I think this is also applicable to all of us because I think each one of us can identify with feelings of guilt from time to time and sometimes even chronically. And so, um, with that, um, I'm going to be sharing our message. I'll invite you to um, pray with me before we open God's Word. Father God, as we open your Word, as we read together, as we um, talk about this idea of guilt and how um, we experience these feelings um, in, our, in, in, in our minds, in our hearts, and um, in our innermost beings, and I just want to pray that you would um, speak to us and that you would... Um, really give us that sense of hope. Uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, we also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. I have a sneaking suspicion that there are a number of people who are probably at home in their apartments or in their homes with their computers opened or their phones, and they're watching that way, so we want to welcome you. Um, I want to start by saying, when it comes to guilt, there are multiple kinds of guilt. Uh, For example, there is good guilt. And in the Bible, good guilt is called conviction. I think sometimes when we we look at that word guilt, it's easy to kind of just think guilt is a negative thing. It's a bad thing. But not all guilt is bad because guilt motivates change. Guilt motivates change. Guilt keeps us from doing wrong. It communicates to us, hey, when I do this, it hurts so-and-so, it hurts myself. Guilt can also be linked to empathy. In 2018, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology published some research and found that people who were more prone to guilt were more likely to be trustworthy. So if you're interested in the article, it's called Who is Trustworthy? Predicting Trustworthy Intentions and Behavior. So the Bible calls good guilt conviction, and this is something that comes from the Holy Spirit. If you look at John chapter 16, verse five, verses 5 to 13, and I'm just going to be reading through portions of this. Jesus is speaking to the, to the disciples, and he's saying, I'm going to leave earth, and as I leave, I'm leaving you with the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. And so he says, I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Verse 13, however, when he, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. See, there are times where we feel guilt, but that guilt is good because it highlights a specific area that requires improvement and provides a solution. And so, notice here, if you go to John chapter 8, verse 32, it says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So the Spirit of God comes and convicts a specific area of improvement, says, hey, this is something to focus on. And as we follow through with that conviction, it leads to a sense of freedom. See, that guilt has a purpose. I think sometimes it's easy to just kind of have this general overwhelming sense of discouragement and failure. And that is not what this is. In John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus also talks about another aspect of this good aspect of, or excuse me, what the purpose of Christ's mission is. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, guilt is good when it becomes a re-examiner of our behavior. But the challenge comes when we refuse to uh, re-examine our behavior, and that leads to this bad or negative sense of guilt. Guilt can also be destructive. When bad guilt has been a part of our lives for a prolonged period of time, it's possible to build our identity around this guilt. Sometimes that guilt can lead to perfectionism or an unrealistic sense or an unrealistic high standard. I don't know if you've ever felt chronic social anxiety, but there's kind of this sense of, I'm just not good enough. That constant uh, guilt can trigger unhealthy addictive behaviors. It can lead to anxiety. It can even lead to depression. Bad guilt is a mysterious thing. It leaves us lingering with this sense of unworthiness. It keeps us stuck in shame, blame, and denial. It's easy to fixate on the past, which makes us feel like we're ruining the present, and the future hope can seem bleak. The Bible calls this condemnation. Condemnation does not come from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation is a barrier to change. It prioritizes punishment rather than rehabilitation. See, condemnation can be self-inflicted. Our mistakes, our perceived inabilities gives us a perception of who we are. That translates to negative self-talk. Why didn't I do a better job? I'm such a failure. I am unworthy. The perception can also hone in on when, when others give us criticism. We can fixate on the negative things that they're saying about us. And then we think to ourselves, well, everybody th- just thinks I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. The expectations of others can also shape our identity. We are communal be- uh, beings, and we place value on what other people think. And so when we have friends family members or or co-workers who tend to uh, nag at our deficiencies, it can shape our understanding or our value of ourselves. 
The good news is that the gospel is designed to give us the ability to reframe our guilt and reshape our identity. Jesus' mission was to free humanity from condemnation, as we just read. It's interesting to me that when we come into the church and perfection is the expectation, people tend to get turned off by church. Ah, so-and-so elder, so-and-so auntie, so-and-so uncle constantly harps on my deficiencies. And perfectionism in the church drives people away. But what I think is interesting is that in the secular world, when perfectionism is the standard, we are drawn to it. One of my wife's favorite shows is MasterChef. And one word that gets repeated more than any other word that I hear is the word perfect. I hear the word perfect used more in the, concept, uh, in the context of MasterChef than in anywhere else. In anywhere else. Contestants beat themselves over imperfection. They shed tears over dishes that don't turn out right. And I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not ridiculing the passion, the effort, and the skill that goes into culinary art. I'm highlighting that we are actually drawn to perfection. We are drawn to high standards. We want sporting teams that we barrack to perform at a high level. We want to be proud of their accomplishments and to identify with their greatness, which is why I support Collingwood. (laughs) I know they're not in the grand final, but anyway... Another discussion for another time. Perfection has its benefits, but it can also become a burden. Notice here in Scripture, there's a biblical definition for perfection. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles there with me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. In Matthew chapter 5, for those of you who have the World Changer Bibles, is page 774. Page 774. And we're going to be looking at verses 40, starting in verse 43, just to give some context, and we'll read through. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Notice how the passage starts. It says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And then it continues on. But I want to go all the way down to verse 48. It says, but you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. And there it is. Jesus, from Jesus himself, he says, I want you to be perfect. But what does that actually mean? If you look at the context of perfection, the context of perfection is being good to those who are not good to you, loving your enemies. Let's look at another passage, Luke chapter 6. It's the exact same sermon from a different person's account. And I think, this, I think Luke's account sheds some light on what, it, what perfection actually means in Scripture. So Luke chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 35 and 36. It's page 828 for those of you who have your World Changer Bibles. <clears throat> Luke, Luke's account goes like this. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. 
and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. So notice the same context, it's the same sermon. And here's the punchline, verse 36. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. So in Matthew, Matthew's account says, be perfect. And then Luke's account says, be compassionate. See, God's definition of perfection is being patient with imperfection. And I think a lot of guilt comes from this this sense of responsibility that we need to get things right. Dealing with our imperfection becomes difficult because oftentimes when we make mistakes, it's difficult to know how God actually feels about our mistakes See, we serve an invisible and oftentimes inaudible God. And so in prayer, it's easy to wonder, okay, am I forgiven? And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you say, God, please forgive me for this, uh, for this specific thing. And as soon as you pray, you still feel guilty. And so you repeat it again, God, look, I just want to tell you, look, I'm really sorry about this but I still feel guilty and just repeat it over and over and over and over again. And at the end of that prayer, all we are left with is still that sense of guilt. If you go to Romans chapter four, verses 13 to 14, I think I've got on the screen here. There's a verse here that I find incredibly helpful when it comes to dealing with this sense of wondering, God, am I forgiven now? And the text goes like this, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. So Paul here is talking about Abraham, how he receives this promise. And Abraham believes in this promise, and because he believes in it, he is considered righteous. And that promise specifically is the promise of Isaac, his son. And so he specifically says here that Abraham didn't receive this promise based off of what he did. He received this promise because God just gave it to him, and he believed it. See, if you look at the life of Abraham, his life isn't littered with good decisions. It's littered with bad decisions. God comes to Abraham and says, I promise you, I'll give you Isaac. And so then later on, him and Sarah decide, hey, maybe if I marry Hagar, Sarah's uh, servant, maybe we can have children, and that's what God means. Or later on, uh, Pharaoh sees uh, Sarah and says, man, this woman is beautiful. And he asks Abraham, who is this woman? And Abraham says, she's my sister, right? Now, how is Abraham going to have a child through Sarah if he gives Sarah to another man to marry him? And he does this not once, but he does it twice. He does it again with King Abimelech. And so Abraham's life is littered with faithlessness. And so The fulfillment of this promise is not based on what Abraham has done. It's based on what God has promised. See, if you look at verse, here we go. If you look at verse 14, notice it says, uh, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. And there's a lot of confusing words in there, but this is the Roy Kim abridged interpretation of this verse i would simply say this the works of the law make void the promises of god the works of the law make void the promises of god in other words if you work for something and you deserve it 
it's no longer a promise that God has given to you. It's not a gift. It's not something special. You deserve it. If you're at your job and you work 40 hours a week, and at the end of that week, you go to your uh, boss, and the boss says, okay, here's the paycheck, he's not doing you a favor by giving you a paycheck. You deserved that. And if he doesn't give you the paycheck, you get to take him to VCAT, right? And so here the text is specifically saying the works of the law make void the promises of God. It nullifies the specialness of God's goodness. Now, if you reverse that statement, it's still true. The promises of God make void the works of the law. The promises of God make void the works of the law. In other words, there are some promises that God gives that void out the importance of what we do. Now, that sounds probably a little bit weird, but let me give an example. So the second coming of Christ is a promise. Jesus says, I am going to come again. Now, because Jesus is coming again, it voids out what we do. So if I live a good life, Jesus is coming again. If I live a bad life, Jesus is coming again. So the promise of God voids out the importance of what I do. Does that make sense? He's still coming no matter what. So in the context of salvation and guilt, how does this work? God gives us Jesus. He promises a savior. And applied to this concept, it's regardless of what you and I, you or I do, Jesus has died for us. Now, I know that kind of sounds like I'm saying, no matter what, you're saved. So everybody celebrate. This is great news. What I'm saying is that oftentimes when we pray, we're trying to change God's mind about how he feels about us. God, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And the whole point is Jesus has already died. So if you live a good life, Jesus has died for your sins. If you live a bad life, Jesus has died for your sins. What you and I do cannot change what God has already done. And so rather than us trying to change God's mind, God, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? God is in heaven going, I gave you the most valuable thing I possess. It's Jesus. You don't have to change how I feel about you. You don't have to change my mind. See, rather than trying to change God's mind with our goodness, we are called to behold God's goodness and let it change us. It's easy to get stuck by mistakes that we've made. It's easy to beat ourselves up over and over and over again. But in Jesus Christ, God communicates there is forgiveness. In 2019, um, just this last year, we, we just finished something called the Laver Cup. And the Laver Cup is a really interesting format of tennis where basically they kind of clump the players from Europe and they put them in matches against every other player in the world. And what's really cool is that you kind of see a different side to the players because they get to coach each other. And so something that I found particularly interesting was uh, Nadal and Federer coaching the other young players um, in, the, on the, on the, in the European team. And you really see the young players playing their hearts out, and they get so frustrated when they miss a shot or if they get a really good shot and the opponent hits it back and wins the point. And you see Federer and Nadal looking at the younger players going, hey, don't worry about your mistakes and don't be negative. And there's such a, there's such a, 
uh, an, a, a difference in approach and a personality difference between those players who are mature and the young players. Because the young players get frustrated, right? And the older players are just like, hey, if you hit a good shot and they get it back, you think they're lucky. If you make a mistake and do a bad shot and you lose the point, just move past. It's okay. Like, don't be negative. And, and you hear, like, Nadal in the background, yeah, don't be negative face, you know? <laughs> it's just, it's a really, really cool thing to see. And what I like here is that Nadal and Federer are trying to get the younger players to reframe their mistakes, reframe their mistakes. And they're saying, hey, if you start getting, if you start being hard on yourself, you are going to lose this match because you are going to think you're not a good player and then you're not going to play like a good player. And so when God sends Jesus, he gives us the ability to reframe our guilt and to reshape our identity. You know, in prayer, you can even walk into the past and say, God, these are things that I regret in my life. I feel like these mistakes shaped who I am. All those moments when my parents said, oh, you failed, or when I just felt like I failed, all those moments you can step back and say, God, this is what I did. This is how I feel. Is this who I am? And what the gospel message does is Jesus dying for us communicates, you are forgiven. You are given an opportunity to just move on, right? Reframe that guilt. Reshape your identity. The mercy of God is truly an incredible thing. If you go to Luke, or excuse me, nah, let's skip that. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. This is the story of the prodigal son. And what's interesting here is that this story has famously been called the prodigal son, but that phrase is not used in the story not even once. I don't know if you've ever looked at the meaning of the word prodigal or prodigious, but prodigious means wasteful. And as we read through the story, we're going to see the story of a wasteful son. But for me, I think the story should be renamed. Rather than it being called the prodigal son, it should be called the prodigal father. Let's read the story together, and I'll narrate with you as we go through the story. The story introduces this man who has two sons, a younger son and an older son. If you look at verse 12, the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, if a younger son comes to their father and says, Dad, I want the inheritance, he's basically communicating, yeah, I wish you were dead or I don't value your life. And so just give me what I'm owed right now. It's an incredibly, incredibly rude request. This child, this younger son, thinks life outside of the life my father has given me would be much better. And so he leaves with his father's money, and rather than things getting better, it gets worse. The text says that the, the son wastes the father's, or excuse me, the, the son wastes his inter um, inheritance with, with uh, riotous living. He loses everything, and soon the land goes into, um, the, the economy drops, there's a drought, there's no more money, work is scarce, and this 
uh, son becomes a, a um, not a pig farmer, but he feeds the pigs. And basically that's all the work that's available to him. There's no food, so he has to eat the food that the pigs eat. And the text says that the son comes to his senses. If you look at verse 18, notice his self-talk. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And so he says, okay, I think this will work. And he heads back towards his dad. If you continue reading the verse, if you look at verse or the passage, if you look at verse 20, it says, while the younger son is still a long way off, his father sees him. I kind of asked myself the question, how does the father see him while he's a long way off? And the whole point is the dad is looking for his son. He's just waiting for him, hoping maybe one day my son will come back. And so as he looks off into the horizon, he sees the shape of his son walking towards him. And he, the text says that he runs towards him. I love how the father greets the son. If you look at verse 21, The son says to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And the next thing that's supposed to come out of his mouth is, just make me one of your servants, and that's good enough. But notice verse 22, but the father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf. We have uh, killed the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. Notice the father cuts the son off. He doesn't let him finish his repenting. The text says that the father puts a robe and a ring on the boy. If you look at other stories in scripture, particularly the story of Joseph, in Genesis 41 verse 42 Pharaoh takes a ring and he puts it on Joseph's finger after Joseph recites this, uh, this dream or the, the meaning of the dream to Pharaoh. And basically, receiving a ring is a reinstatement of power and authority. See, Joseph in his own home was in a position of power, but his brothers, being jealous of him, sell him as a slave. And when he receives the ring, he's reinstated to power. And here in the story of the prodigal son, As the son comes back to the father, the father gets a robe and a ring and reinstates him to his position of authority as son, as opposed to servant. In this story, there are two lost sons, not just one lost son. The younger son left home, but the older son was also lost. As you read through the story, we find that he hears about the party being thrown for his irresponsible younger brother, and he gets angry. He refuses to go into the party, and so the father comes out to his older son, and the conversation is so interesting to me. If you look at verse 29, the son says, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. But when this son of yours squanders your property with prostitutes, you kill a fatted calf for him. 
I'm curious, how does he know that his younger brother wasted his money on prostitutes? They didn't have mobile phones or texting or WhatsApp or Facebook. He didn't see like this uh, post on social media, look what I'm doing. How does the older son know? And the older son is thinking, I know what I'd be doing if I weren't here. And he projects his own behavior onto his son. See, the younger son didn't feel worthy to be a son, so he asks to be a slave. The older son feels like a slave and never enjoys the benefits of being a son. The younger son never gets the goodness of the father, but he receives it and doesn't recognize it. The older son never appreciates his life with the father. And this story, what I'm highlighting is that in this story, it's not about the repentance of the sons. The repentance of both sons are incomplete. The whole point is showing the goodness of the father. It's the complete forgiveness of the father in contrast to the incomplete repentance of the sons. Let me just highlight this point one more time. If you look at verse 11, it's the beginning of the parable. But if you look at verse 10, notice it says, In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And this is in context context to the parable that has just been mentioned, the parable of the lost coin. But if you look at the end of the parable of the lost son, after verse, or verse 32, it says, We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found, and the story finishes. There's no moral of the story. There's no repentance that's highlighted. Because it's really highlighting the prodigious heart of the Father. And that's the point. I think sometimes we ask ourselves, have I gone too far? And if you're asking yourself the question, God, have I gone too far? Have I not done enough? The whole point is God's goodness is greater than our mistakes. You know, I used to uh, share stories of my conversion. And people used to ask me questions. When were you converted? And I would say, oh, when I was 19, I was converted. I gave my life to Christ, and my, like, my life was changed forever. And I kind of thought, yeah, like I have this Christianity thing down. And then I got married, and I was like, okay, I'm not converted yet. And after a while, I kind of thought, okay, I've got this conversion thing worked out. And then I had children, and then I realized I'm not converted yet. And now I just stopped telling people I'm converted. <laughs> I can only tell you when I started following Jesus. I can't tell you when I was converted. <laughs> And the whole point of the gospel is this. It's not about you arriving at a point where you're good enough. It's about the goodness of God. And in the goodness of God, our guilt is properly understood. The gospel also calls us to follow Christ. Oh, so just in, in uh, summary, good guilt calls us to, or excuse me, good guilt in the Bible is called conviction. It highlights specific faults. It provides a specific solution. It leads to freedom. Bad guilt is called condemnation. There's a general feeling of unworthiness. It fixates on punishment, and it keeps individuals oppressed or locked. So the gospel also calls us to follow Christ. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, there's this introduction to Jesus. And John writes or refers to Jesus as the word. And notice what he says. 
It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus was full of grace. His life communicates there is love. There is unconditional love. But his life is also full of truth. In other words, he says, yes, I will always love you, but I will also always be honest with you. See, the gospel compels us to then look at areas in our lives that require improvement. And the, and, and the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. As we come before God and highlight specific areas of our life, saying, God, this is an area of improvement for me. The promise is that God provides forgiveness. He'll provide wisdom. He'll give you space to be able to grow. And so as a Christian, as we hone in on those areas, as we submit to God, it also alleviates that sense of guilt. There's a promise of alleviating guilt. I think sometimes it's easy to look at Christianity as um, it's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. I can do whatever I want, and it's okay. And it's true. Grace is free, but it isn't cheap. And so as we follow Christ, we are then compelled to then say, God, these are areas in my life. I want to submit them to you. As you consider these things, it's my prayer that you would find uh, freedom from guilt, that you would be able to reshape, reframe that guilt and reshape your identity. May God bless you. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we come before you. And as we bring our burdens, as we bring our crosses before you, we pray that your love, your forgiveness, the gift of Jesus would uh, give us that sense of freedom, that we would find that new identity in you. Father, you know our hearts, you know um, what the people in this room have gone through, you know what the people who are watching this service are going through, and we just pray that your spirit would uh, work and move in their lives in just in, in powerful ways. We pray this in your name. Amen.